You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Uh, glad to see the magazines are out. Uh, if, if, if you didn't know, um, several people have. Somebody hold, Frank, would you hold yours up? Um, the Advent has a magazine. Thank you, Sandy. Um, uh, feel free to take one, take take five. If you have four other people that you want to give them to, um, uh, we're uh, they're fresh off the press. I think they came in on Tuesday about two o'clock. Um, uh, it's our third year to do it. The Reformation issue, as it's called, several people. Uh, parishioners and then also some non-parishioners contributed. It's uh, it's really great. It's really great. So take some, please. Uh, let's pray. Gracious Father, for this day, thank you um, for the Reformation, for forming your church, your people, for forming us um, around your word, Lord, for calling us around a living and active word so it does its work to us. Um, we give you humble thanks, Lord, and ask now for the next few minutes that you would be living to us, uh, a living God, uh, speaking a living word, creating in us um, a living faith. And, uh, and let us feel that, Lord, and, and, and be changed thereby. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome. Um, so this morning, uh, all I want to do is, is God, I'd love, to, love it if this was kind of a conversation, um, a class. Today's Reformation Sunday, as you probably know from just being around here or seeing the bulletin, uh, the, the Sunday closest to October 31st each year is Reformation Sunday, this one being a unique one with it being 500 years, um, probably, you know, I would say it's probably more likely than not, we're not absolutely certain that October 31st, 1517, a, a friar in the Augustinian Monastery there in Wittenberg named Martin Luther um, he wasn't a nobody at that point, but he certainly wasn't a somebody. Um, he had just gotten his his uh, his doctorate. Um, they didn't call them PhDs back then. He just gotten his doctorate of theology um, to uh, to teach in this newly founded university in Wittenberg. Um, sort of the elector, the governor of uh, of that area's sort of pet project, uh, and he. Uh, was a, a, a sensitive, well, anyway, I'll say a little bit more about Luther's biography in a minute. A sensitive man, and he went because he wanted to have a conversation about what was going on at a salvific level. Salvific, that's just a, an adjective to describe salvation. And, uh, and there was more and more sort of a new thing had popped up on the screen there in the church at the time, something called indulgences. Uh, that you could indulge upon the grace of God by doing deeds, a penitent deed, or by um, paying money, um, or or going on a pilgrimage, doing doing several different things. They weren't not just anything. It had to be an activity given to you by a priest. And he thought that's not that doesn't smell right. And he wasn't angry yet. He was very humble at the time. He wasn't always a humble man. But at that point, he, he wanted to have a conversation, um, and that's what he did. Is when he posted the 95 theses, and we all learned about those in eighth grade, uh, on the door in Wittenberg, on a castle door, that probably maybe happened uh, because it was just kind of it was the bulletin board of the time. Remember in college, Swanee, they had these places, and you would just post everything. 
I mean, so much everything that it was completely worthless because it was like, you know, anybody want a couch? You know, this club is meeting. Don't forget to vote on Tuesday. You know, just that, that, that tree or whatever where everybody stapled stuff. At least in 1990 they did. Uh, now it's, I'm sure, Facebook would be the equivalent. Post it on your wall. Um, that's what it was. Uh, probably a lot of other things were on the door if there was anything on the door. But it got the attention of some people. Uh, and the printing press had been you know, invented about 50 years ago. It had just been perfected right about that time um, there in Germany. And it went into, went into press and poof, it started. Um, we were off to the races. So that all happened on Tuesday, what we also call Halloween. Um, so today, just wanted to have a class that marked the Reformation, that marked what happened 500 years ago. Because what is the Reformation? Um, there's a lot of things to that. Go ahead and just, I have one slide today, and that's it. So you can stare at it when you get tired of hearing my voice. Um, what is the Reformation? Uh, as simple as it sounds, we could see the word in there, reform. To form again, or to form around something. And all the Reformation was, but the other way of saying it, the entirety of the Reformation is the forming again of the people of God, of the church, around something. And that was a really important fill-in-the-blank. What was the something? Luther, and then many other people afterwards. And so here we are, the Church of the Advent in 2017, still you know, hitting this string, forming it around the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the word of God. Um, the gospel is one of the two words of God, law and gospel. You might even say law, then gospel, but that's a little bit too formulaic. Um, the word of the gospel, of God's forgiveness of sinners, uh, of God's justification of the ungodly. That's the gospel. I'm going to say more about that. That's what the Reformation is. It was to have this idea as if this was the locus point. This is the middle of the circle. And all of this is everything else has to do with the world, creation, death, the end of time, Christ coming again, your identity, my identity, parenting, the church, whatever that means. Um, anything you could think of, big statement right there, anything you could think of, there's this sense of let's reform all that matters. Let's reform at least the church around its loci, around its center point, around its hub and its axis. The, Re the Reformation was about the reformation of the church around this word of God, the living and active word of the gospel. So that's where we're headed. What is the Reformation breakthrough? Um, that's the title of the class. And it was Luther's fantastic, but in some ways extremely simple, but on the other side of everything else, fantastic recovery of this word, this this understanding of the living word of God, which which doesn't just describe something, but actually creates it. So I'm going to give you the punchline. I'm going to work back to it. The gospel is God's declaration of the forgiveness of sins of a sinner. It's almost as simple as way I could say it. The gospel is God's declaration of the forgiveness of sins of a sinner. But here's the thing that Luther realized. When somebody says, I absolve you of your sins... Whoever said that today, I guess it was Deborah, the officiant. Um, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, you are forgiven. Ego te absolvo in Latin, because that's where it was all written in. That that wasn't what you would normally think, where the priest or whoever's forgiving it, could be you forgiving the sins of a, 
of, uh, of, of somebody else that offended you, your child or your spouse or whatever else. It's not just the realization that, gosh, I think they're really sorry. Um, maybe the Lord has already done a work in them, and I'm just going to declare what seems to be something that, that seems to have already happened in them. Does that make sense? It's not that. It's not, I declare to you that you are now forgiven. Um, or it, I declare to you that you, you're, you're forgiven, that there's already been this work, or it seems like you've done a satisfactory, gone through the hoops or the steps or whatever else to make this work. Um, it's actually constitutive, fancy word. It brings about the very thing which is spoken. So when the Lord says, let there be light, or be opened, or um, uh, Lazarus come forth, those are what's called performative words, constitutive words. They're words that actually bring about the thing being spoken. When the Lord said, when God said at the very beginning, when it was nothing but death and darkness, let there be light, let there be life. It wasn't that he saw in there and said like, huh, I see sort of in a nascent way the, the embryonic beginnings of life. I see sort of in, in a dim way that there's already light there. And I'm just going to declare what's already there. No, when he spoke, let there be light. There was nothing. And then there was something. And what Luther saw, the Reformation breakthrough, was as simple but as profound as it sounds. When it is spoken, when the gospel is spoken, your sins are forgiven. That which wasn't now is. You weren't forgiven, but now you are. The action of the speech, when it falls on the ear, faith comes from hearing. That was the scripture that we had in our bulletin today. That there's an actual event that happens when the word falls on the ear to... Uh, to, to bring about, to bring into effect, to bring into reality the very thing which is spoken. Does that make sense? That's the Reformation breakthrough. It's not a declaration that your, in Luther's time, your pilgrimage to Rome was sufficient and satisfactory. And so now your sin is forgiven. Um, it was something completely utter, other. Um, uh, irrespective of anything that you are, have done, will do, uh, your sin your sins are forgiven. Um, so that's where we're headed. That's the Reformation breakthrough. Any comments there? Like I said, I just want to really make this a conversation as much as anything else. Um, the Reformation breakthrough is a performative word. Um, yeah, Duncan? Is this more of an egalitarian approach that we're kind of going to break the, the, the uh, barrier between the, just the peasant and the, and the Lord? Uh, that was the ripple effect of it, absolutely. Um, Nice segue. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about, we'll talk about Luther, say a little bit about his biography. Um, Luther was m much more, and Timothy George even talked about this last week, if you're in the dean's class. Uh, we sometimes want to make Luther, the historical man Luther, 500 years ago, uh, 1500, right at the beginning of the 16th century, the first modern figure. You know, enlightenment, modernity, think all that sort of stuff. So if you like, if you like history and historical epochs and all that stuff, where it was sort of prefiguring what came out of the enlightenment, where our nation was born, for instance, and all that. That life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that freedom, egalitarianism as an ism, all those sorts of things really weren't sort of in, in, uh, 
in the speech, in the writings, for another 150, 200 years. And some of you want to say, well, Luther saw all that and his emphasis on freedom, because freedom was a huge thing to him, uh, was, uh, was, 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 makes Luther in some ways the first modern man. There's, there's something to that. You can say some of that. There were some other people who were also saying similar things at the time. More than that, um, there was somebody, I won't say his name, oh, Scott Hendricks, uh, uh, calls Luther more than the first modern man. He says he's, he's the last great medieval man. And I think that's a better way to describe Luther. What does that mean? It means when you deal with Luther, you deal with spooks and goblins and things that go bump in the night. Uh, he, re- he, he thought, I mean, the devil was as real and active as Ron is to me right here. And so the great stories of him throwing inkwells at the devil, which we don't know if that happened or not, but he definitely, he, he thought, you know, these things were, 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 were real. The flip also holds true, that he thought that God himself was real, as real as Mike is to me, um, that God is real. Now, again, I want to say, as simple as that sounds, that's very effective to me. I mean, that, that stirs me up when I think about that sense of Luther, that God was as real to him as my finger is to my hand right now that I'm touching, that he could he could touch and taste and smell God, that he would work with him that closely. So here's Luther. Um, he grew up like he did a lot, like a lot of people. He's one of, I think, eight children, something like that, born in 1483. Um, remember, 1492 is when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and so that's all what's going on at the time of Luther. And this is the age of discovery, and you got Copernicus and all the others going on, and then over here on the... So that's all the exploration that's going on to the west. To the east, you've got the... Um, uh, Islam and the Islamic uh, threat still today, um, but they're pressing in. The fall of uh, Constantinople had happened, and, and they're coming in, getting really, really close to. Um, uh, uh, oh, what's the city over there in Budapest? Uh, Budapest. Um, uh, they had taken Budapest. They're in Europe and, and all that. So divided front, in other words, and that's when Luther gets dropped into history and comes about. Uh, Many children. Dad was a miner, but kind of worked up out of the middle, out of out of the just being in the mines to actually kind of being what we call a franchise owner. Kind of had several mines and then people working for him. Uh, and Luther, he, uh, the father, wanted Luther to be at a better station than him. Luther showed some promise as a child with education and said, "You're going to be a lawyer. <laughs> You're going to be an attorney." Um, and so he said, "Okay." And he grew up thinking that was what he was going to do. But then in 1503, I think one brother died. In 1504, two of his best friends died of the plague. The bubonic plague is going around. The plagues are happening all the time. Um, there's all these different sicknesses that are going through. Death is also as real to Luther, again, the medieval man, uh, as, as the devil, as God. Death itself, think, you know, sort of, the, the guy with the pitchfork almost coming through and stealing children in the middle of the night. That's how they felt. I mean, a very superstitious age because children would die in a matter of days. Um, accidents would happen and infections would grow. I mean, it's just a brutal, brutal time. Uh, 1505 then, with the specter of all this death going on, some close grief still attached to him. He's walking home from law school to his house, um, from, from his school. 
to his house, and he's caught. He's alone, and he's caught in a thunderstorm. And if you've ever been caught in a thunderstorm, I have on two occasions that I can think of where I was actually scared. This isn't me in my house, and it's kind of fun because it's thundering, and it's lightning, and it's raining, and I'm safe, and it makes me sleep better. But you're really out. You're out on the water. You're out in a field, and it's exposed. And it came out of nowhere, and it is a violent squall line. And it is thunder and lightning, and it is very, very frightening. And I'm, and I'm actually scared. Well, that's what happened to Luther. And some lightning struck, almost certainly, very close. And he jumps on the ground, he's clawing at the mud, and he makes a vow. Saint Anne, help me. If you save me from this, I'll become a monk. Saint Anne, that's, uh, that's Mary's mother, um, Mary, the mother of our Lord, um, Anne, uh, who was the patron saint of minors. So it's all that superstition is also very present because remember his family is a minor and that's would have been the little cult. They probably would have prayed to Anne a lot as children. So he goes immediately back um, to his childhood uh, uh, security and he prays to St. Anne and he says, help me, save me from this and I promise you I'll give you my life. I'll become a monk. I'll go into the contemplative life. That'll become important later. I don't know if we'll get to it. Uh, and... and and uh, and he did. Um, of course, he was was saved from the from the thunderstorm. He didn't die. Um, his father was extremely mad, um, but Luther went anyway. Uh, goes into several of his this last year. Um, presents himself at the door of the Augustinian monastery, uh, like they always did. He knocks in. They said okay. Um, they don't touch him because everybody again the plagues around. Uh, you don't touch anybody. So you know what they do when you present yourself to be a monk. They say, come on in, here's your room, we'll come back, I can't remember if it's three or six months. And if you're still alive, that means you didn't have the plague, and so then we'll talk to you. And so he goes in there, and he goes in there for months. And he's basically bringing some food and water, but, but no, and it's kind of a first testing period. And then he goes through his novitiate for two years, goes through 1507, finally able to uh, present his first mass. Remember what I said about Luther believing in, in uh, the reality of the devil, the reality of death, the reality of God. His first mass, being a, a, a Catholic monk, a Catholic priest now, uh, what happens when you say, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body? God actually shows up. Transubstantiation is the big word. Again, in eighth grade, we learned all this stuff. That the body, that the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Christ. We don't really know how. I'm not going to go into all that stuff. But they're, they're real. Like God is actually now more present right here than he was two minutes ago. Or he's more present right here in the bread than he is over there in that, that, that wood over there. That God is actually here. Think about that for a minute. Now, if that's true, what's the only reasonable response? Yeah, thanks be to God, or run, <laughs> be afraid, be really, really, you, you, you want to know quickly, who is this God? Because if it's, if it's, a, if, if he's in a bad mood, again, if he's bringing death and all things are under his power and my brothers died and my best friend and everything else, quake at your feet. And that's what Luther did. He wrote these later. Um, uh, at the words hocus corpus meum, which is where we get the word hocus pocus, which is kind of fun, you know, because they would hear the, the the priest back, you know, saying the words in Latin very quickly in the mass, hocus corpus meum, this is my body. 
And that just, they knew that's kind of when the magic happened, because they'd ring bells and all that sort of thing, and it just got truncated into hocus pocus. When the hocus pocus happens, at these words I was utterly stupefied and terror stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I asked for that, for I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I'm speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. Luther wrote that in 1507, or he described that experience that he had in 1507, and that experience of God never left him. Um, That God left to himself, he would say. And this is what the bondage of the will was, was substantially about. God left to himself is not to be trifled with. Who are we? Who am I? Miserable little pygmy that I am, full of pride and arrogance and sin, to call down God, God himself, to say, I want this or I ask for that. Uh, God left to himself, we have no business We have no business with, Luther would say. But he would then go on to say, and his Reformation breakthrough came to this. Now we're going to go to Romans, where uh, uh, was the text that he was pounding on. God left to himself, we have no business with, but God, as he makes himself known, God, as he reveals himself to us, God, as he gives himself to us, there's the word grace, the word gift. God, as he gives himself to us. Now that's the God that we are to deal with. And that's the God who is merciful and kind and gracious, the one who raises the dead and heals the sick and tends to the brokenhearted. And so for Luther, the living God uh, was real. And then he wanted to even ask, how am I knowing God here? God, as he exists in himself, or God, as he has revealed himself? Those two, it's one God, Yet the two parts, he would almost, he didn't say that. I don't want to go too far there because there's no mode here. Um, it's the same God, but, but he would want to know which God am I talking about? Because the God that we're not to know, God wills much in himself that we are not to know, Luther said. Uh, there we have no, no cause for speculation. We get into trouble there. God, as he makes himself known, there we plant our flag. How does he make himself known? He makes himself known in his word and his word. The word of scripture and his word, capital W, the word, the logos, the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. So he goes forward out of 1505 and the thunderstorm in 07 when he does the uh, uh, his first mass. And he goes through and much, much later, Luther died as an old man at the time, um, died in 1546 age 63, I think it was, and at 1545, so 60, 62 years old, he's looking back uh, on his life, kind of taking stock of what's happened. Um, he did that some around the table. Uh, so we get these, these words called table talks of Luther. Um, thinking about how to make some sense of what's gone on with this movement that he started. And he looked back and he thought about the, uh, the, the, the breakthrough, the Reformation breakthrough. He said in two different places, this was actually in 1542, and then another one would be 1545. 1542, he said previously, like about the time when he was 
doing the Mass in 1507. Um, previously, I was not deficient in any way, except that I made no distinction between law and gospel. Holding both to be the same and thinking that Christ was to be differentiated to be Moses only in regard to when he lived and concerning the level of his perfection. But after I discovered the difference, that the law is one thing and the gospel is another, then I broke through. So there he's starting to make some sense, similar to which the God as he exists in himself, or what he would call the absolute God, or God unpreached, he would say. Uh, there we have no business knowing, but the God preached, God proclaimed, God known, God revealed, God incarnated. He had all these different words to describe that God, the God known in the gospel. Uh, there we have much to know um, and much to come to. And he would say then that when he discovered the difference between the law and the gospel, also being two distinct words of God with two distinct purposes, he began to break through. So how did he break through? What was this like? And if you were there Wednesday night at the Reformation thing in uh, at Cahaba Brewery, this is the first thing that Mark read, that long passage where he talks about the gates of paradise opening to him. Uh, probably in the tower of his monastery, um, as he was pounding upon Paul, I like that phrase, uh, day and night, trying to figure out what he meant. Um, uh, Luther wrote these words in retrospect, uh, about 25, 28, 29 years after it happened. So take that with a grain of salt. But the 62-year-old Luther, after describing that he had cold blood around the heart, a heart of stone, he then said this, it was a single word in chapter 1 of Romans. In it the righteousness of God is revealed that stood in my way. For I hated that word, the righteousness of God. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punished sinners. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I have, heed, uh, I have heeded the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness, by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise through the open gates, and I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. So, I think that's kind of hard to digest. Let's slow down. I'm going to read Romans uh, 1, 16 and 17, and then we'll talk about it, and then we'll kind of see what questions people have. Um, when I read Romans 1, 16 and 17, if I'm being honest, uh, unless I knew this piece of history that means a lot to me, they wouldn't seem that remarkable to me. Um, but these are, most would say, the uh, Paul's summary introduction to the letter of Romans. He goes through the beginning, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and he goes through and kind of his 
his normal salutation and greetings. And then he starts in 16. Uh, he lays out what, what the letter is going to be about. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, again the gospel, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So quickly, just to kind of lay out what this is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Um, so it introduces the idea of the gospel first off, um, which uh, uh, unless you slow down and realize that this is a, a unique word of God and not to be confused with the law, which he's going to talk about later, uh, there's something, well, it just begins to establish some categories. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. So the gospel, a word of God, is even described, personified, as it were, with power. It is the power of God for a purpose, for salvation. So it's got a power uh, uh, given a, a God, a quality of God that affects a purpose, the salvation of a sinner. For everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek, that's going to set up a lot of what Romans is about uh, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the quick summary is that verse from Habakkuk, otherwise a, 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 a chapter of the, I mean, a book of the Bible we probably don't read a lot, the minor prophet Habakkuk, uh, where the, the quote, the righteous shall live by faith, um, otherwise a throwaway line. Paul lifts it up and uses it here in a couple other places. What does this mean, the righteous shall live by faith? The whole order of things matters. If you assume that the righteous shall live by faith and the righteous are a quality of a human being that is defined a priority a before the living by faith comes, that's a different thing altogether than if the righteous shall live by faith and the righteous become righteous as a gift from God. Two completely different understandings. Do you follow what I'm saying? If it's the righteous shall live by faith, and so now the word is get busy and become righteous, do something, do what is in you, was the word that was around Luther's time. And it's still a word that's in here now. Um, do what is in you. Do your best and God will do the rest. That's almost a direct quote from the 16th century in what's called late medieval scholasticism, if that matters. Do what is in you, uh, for God will not deny his grace to those that do their best. Uh, that resonates with the modern man. That resonates with each one of us in the 21st century. Do your best. God would not deny his grace if you're giving a good, sincere effort. If you're, kind of, if you're sorry, God's not going to sort of deny that prayer. I mean, I've said that to people before. Um, I cringe now, but this idea that if we can generate enough blank, then God is going to sort of say, okay, okay, I'll grant that. That's the righteous shall live by faith, and it's up to us to become righteous. But if you turn it around, and that's the word that Luther then hated, because he said, I hated this word, the righteousness of God, that this righteous, just God couldn't abide me, stinking maggot fodder that I am, as Luther would say. Uh, I hated that word, because when is it ever enough? Do your best, and God will not deny his grace. Well, I was a football player. I've told this story a thousand times, but I remember thinking this when I was a 15-year-old. I would have, I was, 
I was, I was the, I was a great kid for coaches, except that I wasn't any good. <laughs> you know, that was my only problem. I didn't have the ability, but I had all the heart in the world. You know, you know, give it 110 percent, and I, I, I did. I mean, I, I ran until I threw up, and I ran into the wall to try to catch the ball or do whatever else. You know, I would just throw my body around with abandon. I'm paying for it now. Uh, just give it everything you have. Uh, and he still yelled at me. Why? Because I wasn't any good. I didn't have the ability. I had all the heart in the world. But even though I was on the ground, you know what went through my head? Because he would say, give me your best. Give me your best. Give me your best. You know what I thought of? I'm still able to stand. I didn't give it all. I didn't give it all. I can still walk to the locker room at the end of practice. I'm not just absolutely spent on laying on the ground. That was actually in my head. And so I would say, tomorrow, I've got to try harder. I was, I was, I mean, I see it now. I was, I was trying harder every day, and I was never going to get there. Now you take that over to the spiritual world, where there is no stop. Um, that was Luther. Now that may not be you. Now I'm fully aware that's one reason he resonates with me in a really personal way. But there's that place. If that's the word, do your best. God will not deny grace to those that do what is in them. Facare quad in se est. If that's the way we think of our relationship to God, that he's our co-pilot or somehow I've got to do something to either before to get his attention or now that he's loved me, he's certainly expecting something of me. Um, you know, I've got to I've got to read my Bible more. I've got to give to the church more. It's stewardship, you know, all those different things. Luther wants to say, the righteous shall live by faith. And what if, what if, what if the righteous are in fact made righteous, declared righteous purely as a gift, a gift of God so that no one would boast. When that word came, the gospel, which is an external word, which has not occurred natural. When that word came to Luther, he said, everything changed. I now saw that Moses was not Christ, and the two never came together. What he meant, the Ten Commandments, do this, 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 and don't do that. Um, external all the way to covet, all the internal. Everything about you, that's Moses, and that's not Christ. Christ is not just a new Moses, but he's doing something holy and completely different. Now, the righteousness of God, which is now as he is right and righteous. He gives that to us. Uh, and we shall live by that in the certain promise of God. Faith, as I said the other night, faith has nothing, as, 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 as Romans 1.17 talks about it, has nothing to do with a blind leap or anything that has to do with, with a, a gap. Well, what I don't know, I'm just going to have to step out in faith and hope for the best. Um, that's as far away as the color yellow is from from a from a from a Chevy car, from a number six. Um, two completely different categories. On the certainty of Christ's righteousness, I shall live. And he was died. He died, was buried, and was resurrected. And on that, that's called faith. That's belief. That's the certainty of Christ's death and resurrection for me. And so now I'll come to this and I'll stop. 
So what's this been behind me for? Um, it's a sculpture in Germany called the, the Listener. And Luther, through all this, um, came to see that the, the ears are the chief organs of a Christian. Um, uh, and so we have this figure with this elbows here, and it kind of makes that cone going up, so it has that verticality that you're absolutely, and there's no mistaking that you're going upward uh, with the look and the cupping around the ears. Faith comes from hearing. The certainty of being able to, to, uh, to face life you know, as the word which quiets all the other words. My 15-year-old words as I'm laying on the ground you know, in the, in the Texas heat. Um, the, the ear hears the word. You don't need to try anymore. Just stop. You know, you're already mine. You're, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. Um, you shall not die. You are uh, a child with all the inheritance of the Father. Um, your sin now becomes mine. And my righteousness is now yours. And the ears, uh, that deep listening, um, that's, the, that's the means. That's the way we apprehend. So anyway, I'm going to stop. Um, thoughts, questions? Talk about Luther. Um, he's not to be deified. There's a ton about him that was, uh, he was way off. There, was, there were several things. I won't say there's a ton. He was... 100% wrong on, but he was he was dead right on a lot of stuff, um, and he's still got he's, he's worth listening to. So, comments or questions? Yeah, John. Can you give me a rational explanation why the emperor didn't kill him? Why the what? The emperor didn't kill him? That's what Duncan was asking. Um, so I know a little bit about that, but I'm going to get out of my league really quickly. Um, the Holy Roman Empire was divided into seven, what we now call states. I think it were just areas then. Each one of them had an elector. The seven, seven powerful men, you could buy that position just if you had enough money. You could then be the uh, sort of the governor of that area, what we call it now. Luther's, very strangely for lots of reasons, um, uh, was, was a guy named Frederick. Um, and he had just started the university. And Luther was kind of a thing, and he was making some money for him because people were coming to Wittenberg to hear all this. That reason and some others, withstanding a lot of pressure from the Pope and the other electors, Frederick said, I'm not going to kill Luther. And in fact, I'm going to hide him. Once he finally went to the Diet of Worms, where he said, here I can stand, I can do no other. And Luther was kidnapped by friendlies and then, uh, and then, then hidden in the Wartburg uh, castle um, for, for just over a year. Uh, he he had the he had his his governor's favor, um, and the governor never gave him up, and nobody ever came in because of other things that would happen if uh, if somebody else came into somebody else's uh, uh, territory. It'd be the equivalent of civil war, and again you've got money being spent in trying to discover the new lands, but you're also having to fight wars over here against the Turks as they called them. Uh, so it was just this happenstance of history where there were divided fronts already, and they weren't going to risk civil war. In other words, having one uh, uh, elector's area be at war with six others, or maybe you start to divide it two against five, or three against, three against four, or something like that. So, strangely enough, he had um, Frederick's favor. And then after that, 
Um, what that meant was he could never leave that area. He would have absolutely been killed if he'd have tried to go to the Diet of Augsburg, for instance. That doesn't mean much to a lot of people, but a really famous gathering of theologians in 1530, and Luther didn't go because it wasn't in his protected area, and he would have he would almost certainly have been kidnapped and taken to Rome, and uh, and bad things would have happened. Um, so, just a quirk of history in some ways. So. Yeah, Mike. I think that the idea of accepting forgiveness just by hearing the word is harder in today's society. Absolutely. You, I mean, when we talk, you know, when I'm hearing you talk about Luther and how he believed, many of us would attribute that to almost a magic where, you know, that, that these, the spirits being right there on them and, and the fear and, and as you put out the, you know, the, but if you put it into the day of the time, the, the, the thought of the time, the world was flat in their mind. Right. And then yesterday, yesterday I saw pictures, up close pictures of Saturn that were taken from a, a, a spaceship kind of thing. And Back then, the plague was the work of Satan, and today we know the bacteria that caused the plague. So I, I think that, in essence, it's almost a little harder and it gets drowned out by the noise of yep. today to, yep. to realize that it is. And, and, but I think that's one of the things Yeah, it's a great point. Um, and I'll leave it there with some tension. Um, is it easier now to believe than it was then, or is it harder? I don't, I don't know. Um, but you do bring back to my point, which I lost. Appreciate that. Luther's reformational breakthrough. The, what was in, in the literature about Luther? Scholars are like, what was reformational? If you had to boil it down, what was the evangelical, which is the adjective for the word gospel, um, euangelion, evangelical? What was the evangelical word for Luther? And it was that sense that it's a word that doesn't find and declare what has already happened in you, the, the forgiveness of sins, or health, or um, uh, ease, or peace. It doesn't say, peace be with you, because I can already tell that you've already got this peace around you. So I'm going to say, peace be with you. It's the word that actually creates the very thing which is spoken. I can see that you are absolutely balled around the axle. Peace be with you. And there's Luther would say, you can agree with it or disagree with it. I, you probably would guess I agree with this. It's a word through the Holy Spirit's work which delivers the very thing spoken. It creates, it constitutes a new reality. Your sins are forgiven. It's the most full one. You will not die. <laughs> uh, which is to say, you are now hidden in Christ, in God. And the death that he died, you now no longer have to die. And the life, his resurrected life, is yours. Um, we who share with Christ in his baptism and death, so also shall share with him in his resurrection. That's the evangelical or reformational word of Luther, that it creates a new reality. Um, Lord, if that's true, let it just resound through each one of us and into our families and uh, uh, and let that word be spoken and bring about a new reality, a reality of peace and hope and healing and health and life itself. Lord, let it be so. Amen and amen.
In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.